People of Earth, I would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it, to make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. If you've been paying attention over the last 20-whatever episodes, you know that craft beer is an ugly place to make any money. You do not go into the beer industry to get rich, or even to pay your light bill. Well, here's a newsflash I bet you didn't see coming. Homebrew shops aren't making any either. For today's episode, I sat down with Scott Birdwell to discuss what it's like to own a homebrew shop for over 40 years and then watch it slowly die. This cat was selling homebrew equipment back when it was illegal. He understood the business, he understood his customers, and he understood the industry. But even he wasn't ready for the disaster the industry experienced over the last five years. When we talk about leases, about beer, and about business, I learned that the homebrew industry also struggled because of the massive proliferation of breweries in America. So who knew that going from 1,500 breweries in 2011 to 9,000 in 2022 was going to create a problem? Well, I did. And I'm on a mission to share that story with everyone who'll listen, and the five guys even who won't. So sit back, crack a beer, and listen to Scott's story and the story of the Falco's Homebrew Shop. You might just learn something. Remember when you had to buy film for your camera, take pictures you couldn't see or edit, and then pay someone to take two weeks to develop them into pictures? Well, there wasn't a better way then, but there is a better way now. Are you literally still measuring final gravity with a hydrometer like some furry caveman? Dude, you need to get AccuBrew. You'll find real-time feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. And the thing will alert you anywhere in the world when any of them are out of your spec. I'm tired of telling you to make better beer, so go install AccuBrew and make me shut up. Seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and even I will thank you. All right, Scott, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, for giving a comma delimited carboy fermented fuck about helping all my guests be better at their careers. You have what I would reflexively refer to as an amazing story. You literally started working at a homebrew shop before it was even legal. You watched the rise of the craft beer industry over the last few decades, the tragic evolution of the craft beer fan. You built a business, you expanded massively, and watched the whole thing crumble before your eyes. Literally cannot be more excited about getting into how exactly this worked, and I'm, I'm very interested in your story, so I'm glad that you're sharing with us today. At this point, the story sounds so much like many of the craft beer breweries in the United States that I talked to you, like you but you actually owned a homebrew shop, so it was a totally different arm of the industry. And so I'm interested in getting into the parallels for how that industry kind of works compared to the commercial brewing industry. And I want to hear about how you watch the average craft beer consumer change and evolve over the years from what I would consider to have been a rabid enthusiast to what I would currently call a pretentious douchebag. First, I want yeah, to get to know you. Yeah, there's some truth there. <laughs> <laughs> I want the audience to get to know you. So as I understand it, you started selling homebrew equipment in 78, which was uh, about one year before it was legal nationally and five years before Texas got their shit together and figured out how to make it legal. But your website sort of just lays that out there and walks away from it and says, that's a story for another day. And Scott, <laughs> I would encourage you to make this be that day. I would like to hear that story. So what happened? Okay. How'd that go? 
Well, um, I had spent the summer of 77 in Europe, and uh, everywhere I went, the beer was a lot better than it was in the U.S., by and large. I mean, there were a few exceptions, but not many. I think when we were in Great Britain, I had seen some homebrew supplies in the windows of the shop. And, it, and, and looking back on it, must have, I, I suspect it was a Boots chemist, which a chemist is a pharmacy in the U.K., and Boots was like a big chain, CVS, Walgreens kind of thing. Okay. And they sold a lot of homebrew supplies back in those days because prime, in those days in the UK, it was all about saving money because beer mm. was getting expensive and they were making dreadful homebrew over there, but it was cheap, you know. So that's another story. I, that would be another tangent we could talk about at some other time, but the, the British homebrew scene, but they just sort of planted the seed in my mind. And when I got back to the States, I was more than broke. Uh, so uh, it, I sort of had to climb myself back into a reasonable financial position uh, and then moved in with a roommate and said, okay, it's time to go to the homebrew shop. The homebrew shop was in the Rice Village at the time. The shop had been around not quite seven years, I guess. I'm not sure this is a correction, but <laughs> we the Falcos wasn't selling homebrew beer supplies. We sold the ingredients to produce sparkling barley wine and that was that statement was enough to throw the cops off the scent oh well we didn't really want to find out if that was enough but that's <laughs> the way we we kind of euphemistically refer to it <laughs> so yeah it's just sparkly barley wine it does make it very difficult to promote the hobby when it was illegal but it was illegal everywhere and i started there and i went in there in january so the last month was 44 years ago and uh, I was uh, my first batch turned out, like I say, kind of uh, was, we were talking earlier, kind of cidery because I had two pounds of corn sugar in it, along with three and a half pounds of mutton and fison amber hot malt extract package of super brow yeast. We had a party and decimated it when it was about three or four weeks old. And then I found a six pack like two weeks later. And it was like, oh, my God, this is so much better. <laughs> so the sugar cidery twain had dissipated in that additional time so that was lesson number one you know can't replace age you know yeah well so yeah. one question i would have and obviously you weren't there when the defacos made this decision maybe but you had to have gotten to know them enough to know later how did they have the balls to do this was the fine not that great or they just decided that they were smarter than the tabc back then well, I don't. People didn't care. I mean, I've I've watched this all over the country. I mean, I was working at the shop when it got legalized nationally. All these individual states have statutes against not all fifty of them, but a lot of them did. Mm -hmm. And the last two were, I think, Alabama and Mississippi, and they only legalized seven eight years ago or so. You know, by and large, I don't know of anybody that ran a homebrew shop that ever got busted for selling homebrew supplies. But we had a homebrew competition in 82, I guess, the first one I'm aware of in Houston. And we had to do it kind of, you know, behind closed doors because it was still illegal in Texas. Yeah, it was it 83, I think they passed the law. Yeah, 83 okay. was when yeah, Governor White signed the, the bill. We were involved in getting it pushed. That's that's also a story. Getting homebrew legalized in, in Texas. We had Mutton and Fison. We had a can from Edinburgh called DCL and the ugliest little two and a half pound can you've ever seen. We had some kilogram cans of uh, John Bull uh, malt extract. And then we occasionally had one. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Gold metal, I want to say, out of Canada that had something that looked like 
a soldier from the First World War on the front. You know, they were decent malt extracts. And of course, at that time, Pabst was making blue ribbon still. Back when I was uh, kid. Yeah, and you could you go to a grocery store and pick it up for pretty cheap. You know, less than three dollars for a three pound can. So today we definitely have this um, relationship between home brewing and craft beer in the sense it's the artistic part of it. It's the you know coming up with new ideas, new new formulas, new recipes. But I have to assume, based on the limited selection of what you guys had to drink back then, that it was kind of just making a homebrew version of what you commercially tasted normally? Or what were you guys doing? No. I, I, I hope to God there were no Snickers in stouts, but I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, people were beginning to travel at that point. By and large, we never, ever had many people trying to make Bud Miller or Coors at home. Really, And some of the ones that did were actually serious about making a good quality American log. They weren't trying just to make a cheap Budweiser's going up to 350 a six pack. I'm going to make it cheap. Because, <laughs> you know, when you figure, you know, your time into it and everything, then, you know, you're working pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah. Were they five gallon batches back then, too? That's kind of the standard yeah, now. Because okay. we all use distilled water bottles as a secondary fermenter. So. Okay. I, I think I paid I can't remember whether I paid three fifty for the water and a three dollar deposit for the carboy or vice versa, but I know when I walked out of there I'd spent six dollars and fifty cents, including the deposit on the carboy. And then I used the spring water to make the first batch of beer. So that's very different than today. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I got these polycarbonate carboys these days, which you can use, but they tend to scratch easily. They're not real good. For that yeah yeah not for long-term use anyways so that's a great lead into a question that i had which is what did the, the average homebrew kit look then versus today was it essentially the same well, kind of stuff at, at that point you really didn't have any national kits all, all the shops made up their own kits ours was had a, a 7.8 gallon light bucket out of canada because that was six and a half imperial gallons it had a glass carboy, what we call a J-tube for racking, a rigid acrylic tube with a little hook on the bottom to keep the sediment from getting sucked up, which we had to bend ourselves. <laughs> Five feet of hose, a little hose clamp on it. So we put sulfide in the kits for sanitizing because that's what we were using in wine kits. We still, really? in fact, up until the very end, that's what we were including in our wine kits with sulfide. I mean, sulfide's been used for winemaking for eons, you know, so... Frankly, bleach would have been better, uh, but hey, <laughs> looking back on it, hydrometer, of course, and I knew people that sold kits without hydrometers. It's like when the customer calls you up on the phone and wants help and you ask for the SG reading and they don't have one, it's kind of like, well, I can't give you a lot of help without that. So. <laughs> yeah, we don't know where you are at this point. Yeah. What about work chilling? Uh, I feel like that was one that, uh, you know, the No, that was, that. nobody knew anything about that. We included one thing. That as soon as I became the owner, I got rid of, and that is we had this capper that you take your bottle, after you filled it, you put a cap on the bottle, you put the capper on top of the cap, and you use a hammer to drive <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, what could go wrong? And they, they were like ghouls of little fishy attorneys circling the shop waiting for somebody to like, sl you know, slash their arm or leg or you know whatever you know or lose an eye or it was just like no this is a bad idea yeah and it never happened you never had a lawsuit no we never did but Dude. boy I, as soon as i bought the place i said in fact maybe even when i became the manager i think even before i bought it i said we're not doing this you know 
Yeah. So so then it was like you could buy a capper. We had you know they they weren't expensive, but you know they weren't three or four dollars like they they were back then for a hammer capper. But it was just uh, no. <laughs> so I mean, if you looked at it, you would go, okay, yeah, that looks like you know it was pretty much the same thing as a winemaking kit, yeah. except that it had caps. It had caps in it and instructions, and then we'd throw we threw in a set of ingredients. Some some shops would say, okay, you buy the ingredients separately, but you know we we threw in a can of hopped extract and a bag of sugar, you know. So yeah, so and I'm asking you to dig back in the archives, and you might be this might be traumatic based on what you had to taste, but what what was the quality of the beer? I'm just curious if it do you, well, did you see a market one, difference? Well, the first batch I made was um, like I say, it was pretty cidery. I mean. You think about it, three and a half pounds of malt extract and two pounds of corn sugar, you can do the math. That's a pretty high percentage of sugar. Mm-hmm. And that tended to make the beer, I call it cidery, especially until I got a noticeable amount of age. As we were discussing earlier, that, that first batch was very cidery, and I was kind of disappointed with it. And then I found some some a six-pack, maybe two, that had survived the party, and they had been given another two weeks or so, and the beer was much better. It was still thin. I mean, mm-hmm. it had to be, yeah. The, the sugar would ferment out completely. You know, years later, I looked back on it and said, instead of buying a two, or you know, yeah, buying a two-pound bag of sugar, I should have bought one of those two and a half pound cans of DS, DCL and thrown that in. <laughs> then I could just use household sugar to to carbonate it with, you know. But, yeah. You were making barley seltzer before it was cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's get into that. How did how did it how did the transition go from you being the beer expert, resident beer expert at Defalco's, to becoming the guy that had to pay the rent? Did they just come to you one day and say, "Hey, I got an offer you can't refuse," or what happened? Well, I, you know, it was interesting. The the manager at the store when I first went in there was she was pretty sharp. I came in, I was buying my second set of ingredients and, you know, we talked, I guess, you know, I was, you know, he, this guy's, he's bright and he's young and yeah, it's hard to believe. Of course, <laughs> that was 44 years ago. And it, she saw that homebrewing was going to become a bigger deal than it was at the time. And there were all, already talk of bills being circulated around through Congress mm-hmm. and stuff like that about legalizing it anyway so she asked me if i wanted to work on saturdays i mean it, it didn't pay much but i was doing shipping and re- receiving at cactus for a full-time job and i think i was paid in fact i wasn't supposed to tell anybody i was making three dollars and fifty cents an hour back then that <laughs> was not just how much i made with my fellow employees you know because it was such an enormous amount of money it's a know? fortune man yeah yeah <laughs> so so I started working there part time, and then that was in March of '78. And then by July, we had a shakeup there. People moved around, and I became full time. And I took a fifty cent an hour cut in pay, and I lost my part time job hmm. to work there full time. <laughs> but I enjoyed it, and you know, I knew that the shipping and receiving was not going to really go anywhere, and uh, so. I knew that they weren't paying low wages at the homebrew shop because they were cheap. They were, were doing it because there wasn't that much business. You know? Right. They still had some to build it some. Yeah, it had to build up. Yeah. So so they just where come to you one day and say, hey, you want to be the owner? Not far from that. See, that was uh, July of 78. In May of 79, the manager left to go back to California. I became the manager. 
And then after a year and a half, the owner came in. I think we we were essentially, I think, a tax write-off for all this time. And he came in in 1980 and just said, when are you going to buy this place from me? I said, well, I don't really have, you know, <laughs> I've been working for you. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> saving anything, that. bro. Yeah. yeah. So he floated, he and his partner floated the loan. Oh, that's cool. So they, they did a owner, yeah. owner financing for you? Yeah. So they actually, you know, for the next two and a half, three years, they ended up getting more money out of the business than they ever saw, I think, in the past, just me paying off the note. Yeah. So do you feel like you got a good deal now looking back? Yeah. Well, I mean, they they gave it to me for the the value of the inventory and, a, you know, a, a small amount for the fixtures, I'm guessing. Well, and you made it, it was, turned into a 35-year career after that. So obviously it was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The princely sum of $16,500. You too, but own a homebrew store. Yeah. Yeah. That was $1980, though. So you could you mm. could go to Google and figure out what that equates to in twenty twenty two dollars But, you know. You spent a lot of time on your website talking about landlords. So I wanted to actually get into this a little bit. You sound okay. like you might be an expert on leases, at least in the Houston area. <laughs> um, so let's go. Let's dig through this and just kind of give me some, some of the background of what happens here. So 1980. Landlord comes to you and says, rent's going up to exactly twice what you're currently paying. I'm trying to think of what we were paying. We were paying 600 a month, and I think he was going up to 1000 I did not own the business at the time. That mm-hmm. was before I bought it. So I talked to the people. The owners had very little to do in the business by the time I got there, and they had not been active part of the, the business since probably 73 or so. So I, I talked it over with the guy, my contact there. And said, do we want to consider moving? So we ended up moving literally two blocks away, just around the corner. But it was more importantly than two blocks, unfortunately. It was a block over and a block up. So we weren't on the same street anymore. Mm. And that meant that we had about a year and a half where we did not have the right address in the the, uh, Yellow Pages. And that was devastating at the time. Now, you know, the last year or two, I didn't even have a Yellow Pages ad because it was just like nobody uses that you have kids that need a booster seat, you know, so. Now you just have to remember all the stupid-ass sites you have to change your address on. So it's oh, yeah. Google, Yelp, TripAdvisor. Like every, you just have to make sure everywhere yeah. got the new stuff. You can do it all in a day. It's fine. So you mentioned yeah. on your website that uh, the, the new location was, quote-unquote, less desirable. What does that mean? Did you go to, like, a warehouse district? Primarily because it was off the beaten track. I mean, we were mm-hmm. on University Boulevard in Houston in the village, and that was and still is to this day one of the main two main streets in the village and it's still a pretty vibrant area just west of the rice university campus there so this is an interesting debate and when you first like if you're if you're a new guy looking at or girl excuse me the new guy or girl looking at where you're going to go typically you always have these two choices right it's be on the main drag pay a shitload more in rent probably less in advertising be off the main drag pay less in rent, but maybe have to make up that shortfall in advertising. And the question is always, which one is the better choice? And between those two, with I'm curious what you think. I think most people would agree uh, in this industry that it's better to go with the less prominent location. And because you're a destination business, mm-hmm. people, the, the problem wasn't that we were in a less desirable location. The problem was that we were no longer in the location that we had been at 
for nine years. So in home brewing, people aren't driving by, slamming that brace going, shit, I needed yeast, and then they just come in. Yeah, you would think that the people would call the phone number saying, I, I went by <laughs> and you weren't there. Obviously, a, a lot of them did, but a lot of people didn't. I think we missed the deadline for changing the address in the yellow pages. So that came out six months later. So then it was another year after that had the correct address in. And that's when business started recovering somewhat at that point. Okay. And, and you mentioned the soon afterwards or five years later, maybe something like that, the Ginger Man moved in, which is... Yeah, we of- moved there in 1980. And then 85, Bob Precious opened up the Ginger Man. And the Ginger Man has been acknowledged as probably one of the first new beer bars in the country, as a matter of fact. It was really groundbreaking because mm-hmm. he's... He featured graft beers. More, I mean, he had every graft beer just about that you could get. And if it was imported, he just didn't have a lot of tap. He might have had 15 or 20 because he didn't have that many domestics. He you know, mm-hmm. he wasn't there to have Pat's Blue Ribbon on, on draft. He had Bud Light or Miller Light on draft and, and didn't bother having, you know. The, the previous bar that was there had 12 beers, I think. I remember that because sometimes we'd go next door. <laughs> they, they had 12 beers, and three of them were Bud in a bottle, butt in a can and butt on draft. So there's there's a quarter of their beers right there. So <laughs> you know, most of the bars in Texas aren't that different today. So, interesting yeah, yeah. so how did that change things overall? You mentioned that it was a, a symbiotic relationship. So I as you mentioned in your notes, you were asking, were we sharing customers? And we were absolutely sharing customers because the same people that were drawn to uh, uh, imported and craft draft beer were also the ripe for making homebrew and vice versa. The people that were making homebrew would have been. I, I remember we had friends visiting from Boston when we were doing the early homebrew competitions. They weren't getting Sierra Nevada at that point of any kind. And we would go next door and get a pitcher of beer and then walk it back to the homebrew shop. And <laughs> the very thought of walking next door and coming back with a pitcher of Bigfoot barley wine just blew their mind. They were the Boston work processors, which are still around. That's funny. So yeah, that's a, that's a cool way to make sense, right? Like, yeah, I've heard of a lot of homebrew shops that'll have beer on tap there, but then it's free yeah. no revenue or whatever. So yeah, uh, that does make sense. Yeah, it it was a good, it was a good deal. I mean, we had some parking in the village is always tough, and it still is. I mean, we had very limited. We had like six parking spots, so when people would park there in front of our shop and then go next door was that was a bit of an issue but by and large it the pluses outweighed the minuses so yeah and at some point there was a brewery i think that went across the street from you guys was that after you left or we had three, we had three breweries in the village before <laughs> we moved yeah the first brewery in houston was three or four blocks away uh the village brewery and then we had uh oh the bank draft <laughs> which was in my old bank, which was also in the village. They had their old vault there. And then, of course, uh, two rows. Two rows is what I was thinking of. I've seen that one there. Yeah. Okay. So at one point, you could walk out of my front door at my homebrew shop and hit three brew pubs up, or, yeah, three brew pubs up within four or five blocks in total. It's pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty nice. Today, it'd be tough to do that. Like, there's, they're all over the place, yeah. but there's not a bunch of districts that'll have three across the street like that. Uh, that you lasted there 16 years, but like I said, you are an expert on moving and finding new landlords. So at that point, the landlord at this we, new cool spot off the beaten path said he wants three times as much. We were, like I said, we were paying $600 a month at the old location. This one was $700. So it was only $100 more. It was the same size. It was an old convenience store. (laughs) And the only real problem with it, other than the fact that it was not on the main drag, was that the landlady did not 
spent a lot of money on upkeep. And when it rained really hard, which it does in Houston all the time, it, water would tend to flow in the back part of the building in my office. And <laughs> sometimes when you had to turn out the lights at the end of the day, and, you know, you're standing in, you know, two inches of water. It's kind of scary. <laughs> Yeah. You go back to the panel and wonder, uh, do I really want to do this? Uh, maybe not right now. Maybe I'll leave the lights on. Especially so, if you're trying to keep the place kind of sanitary and not have mold everywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, that was really hard to keep that place clean. Yeah. But it was, I mean, the location was really good. Yeah. So then she decides she needs, what, 1500 bucks, And you say, okay, I'm out. And well, move somewhere she, else. Where'd you go? Well, no, no, no. See, that was, she sold after we had been there over 15 years. And the new landlady said, okay, you're paying, at this point, 1300 a month. So 15 years later, we're paying, yeah, we're paying 13 So we've gone from 700 to 13 So it's almost double, but that's, you know, that's about right. It's normal, yeah. That's normal. She wanted 3800 <laughs> So it's almost triple. And we said, maybe not. So we moved again in the village, this time about six blocks away. But unfortunately, it wasn't a place that you could that you would go to other locations in the village. And the village is a you know big shopping area. People didn't park in front of our place and walk into the village. And people didn't park into the village and walk to our place. So even though we were technically in the village, we weren't really in the village. So mm-hmm. that was and that was the shortest stay anywhere. We were on there for five years. And then the landlord got greedy. And uh, he wanted to... I'm trying to think what we were paying. We were, we were paying 1800 We had more square footage, but some of it was upstairs, which wasn't really good retail area. But it was where we stored stuff. So, I mean. You had to have it. it was, we had a Montessori school across the way, and the lady that ran that was just the witch from hell. And she was very entitled, and she figured it had been a toy store before. And then the toy store had moved, ironically, right across from our old location, six blocks away. They shared a lot of customers, and she thought, well, you should be able to share your parking with us. Well, they didn't have any parking to share with us. Yeah. It was all take and no give. We so, didn't get off to a good start, and it didn't get any better in the five years we were there. So so you're only there for five years, and then she had the ability to raise the rent. So was it? were you typically doing shorter-term leases, or was it month-to-month? We, month we did a five-year lease there. We'd been okay. doing three-year leases before that, and we did a five-year lease there because I didn't want to have to move in three years. You know, So this time, so that was 2001. By then, we had a website. So <laughs> it did have a shopping cart and that sort of stuff on it, but at least it had – it had a list of what we carried. You know, it had, you know, this is where we are. It was it was an informative website. So when it came time to move, knew we were moving a couple of months in advance. So we were passing out flyers. And then, of course, we put on the new location on, on our website, all that sort of stuff. So the transition was not nearly as rough as it had been before. So it's yeah. a lot easier. A lot easier. But with that one, you actually left Rice Village, which you had been in that whole time. And that was the big. That was the thing that I was most concerned about because we moved like three and a half miles away. It was ironically only about four blocks from where I lived, but <laughs> I had been living there for a while. That wasn't a big incentive for me, but as it turns out, it was the best deal. You know, and we got 2,500 square feet. The rent was, we were beginning to pay real rent now. We were paying like 3,000 a month or you know, something like that, maybe 2,800 initially. But we were there. Four from there, we did that, 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 that. 11 years. Yeah, we were there 11 years. Okay. And, and that was the biggest one you had, right? You went to almost three times the square footage. And fortunately, that one, when we made that move, it was just up the street. So it was on the same street. We went from 2,500 square feet to 7,000. 
Oh, wow. So, okay. And that was right after the first of the year in 2012. And our business just, which was already growing, but when we had room to store extra product, and we had uh, lots of room to make up displays of what we're stocking, what we're selling, what we're trying to inform people about. I mean, business just exploded. Yeah. So that was the final location in 2011 that you moved to. Right. Bigger, right. you know, bigger rent. And um, we're going to foreshadow just a little bit. But we're going to cover more in the last section that uh, you ended up having to close out, close down in that location in 2009, like eight years later. Were you able to yeah. walk away from the lease completely? Was it... Was it a comfortable walk or was there going to be, and we're, again, we're going to cover that in more detail, but I'm just foreshadowing. When we closed in 2019? Correct. Is that what you Yeah. We were able to walk away, not because that's what the landlady wanted. We got along great for all that time until I said, we're having to shut down. We can't keep, we can't go on. And she was making all sorts of threats. There was a personal guarantee in the lease, but that had expired after we did a five plus five with a five-year option. So we had already long passed that first five-year. And then the personal guarantee went away after the first five years were up. So mm -hmm. she really didn't have any leverage. If we had moved somewhere else and open, then she might have had some kind of leverage. But mind you, the, the last day of our lease, they had people inside there painting the place. <laughs> she had a new tenant waiting in the wings. So she would have been very hard-pressed to say she had damages. Yeah, she didn't lose anything. She didn't lose. She had rent, you know. So she thought she had leverage, but she didn't. Uh, I, I have had similar experiences with ridiculous landlords as well. And they, they don't yeah. – you think the guy with the, or girl with the money who owns the building that's worth a bunch would have a little more intelligence, but it's not always the way that it works. No, no <laughs> I totally understand. I, it, it, and I've seen this time and time again in Houston where very desirable – property just sits there languishing because, you know, as long as they're getting more money coming in mm -hmm. overall, they don't really care about this location or that location or a lot of them don't. It just blows my mind. But hey, I'm not a fat cat landowner. So what can you say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't quite get it from this side. Yeah. One of the big questions I wanted to ask when I read sort of that story was that as a guy who's now experienced five landlords and different leases and ups and downs. Um, what, what kinds of advice would you have? You know, you mentioned the personal guarantee and that you had that come off at the renewal. That's not something that happens every time. So did you have somebody help you negotiate that? Or did you learn a lesson from something bad that happened? I, we had the, the real estate attorney that writes for the a column in the Houston Chronicle. I approached him and said, we had used him several times because we had opened up an, a second location, the ill-fated location in 2014, but we used him for that. And then we also used him when we were extracting ourselves out of the lease. And that was money well spent. Get yourself a good realty attorney. Yeah. I don't know what the what the term for those pe those attorneys are, but somebody that specializes in commercial real estate. Yeah. So that sometimes... Some of these people, we had a, a, another location, which I sold years and years earlier. The original lease had about 30 pages in it, and about 10 of those pages were just boilerplate crap that had nothing to do with our location. It's like, why are you signing anything that this needs to go? And that's the kind of thing that, you know, you don't want to get tripped up over something that didn't really have any bearing, and then all of a sudden things change, and it's, it was money very well spent. So I would recommend that you do that. It, it, you're not going to spend a fortune on it. And, you know, if you're talking about opening a business, starting up a business, 
500 to a thousand dollars for an attorney just the peace of mind alone is worth it and then you might actually get yourself out of sticky situations because you you know had the forethought to do this beforehand especially in the end like most people aren't going to have the time or the energy to fight it at that point because yeah obviously you're there's a whole bunch of emotions you're around just closing down the next thing i want to get into is going to be kind of the nuts and bolts of the financial side of how you ran the homebrew shop but First, let's take a quick break. Um, I'm going to let the dogs out and go do something crazy, and then I'll come right back. Okay. All right. Welcome back. So I'm curious about the numbers of running a homebrew shop. Um, anyone that knows me knows it doesn't take very long hanging around me before I just start getting back to the profit side. And the, how does it work? And how do you make money doing it? I mean, even though most craft beer people I talk to truly hate that conversation about as much as a witch hates water. But uh, in this podcast, we've learned that the craft beer bottle shop model is kind of dead. It's and really, it's the, the part of the draft is king. The there's a five x markup and a ten x depletion rate, and it just doesn't work to put a bottle on the shelf at a thirty percent margin. And from what I can tell, at least from the outside looking in, the homebrew model is more in common with that craft beer bottle shop margin than it does the draft. I'm just curious if you'd agree. Um, what your thoughts are on that? I would tend to agree with that. Maybe not. For the same, maybe the underlying reasons might be different, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think they're both less viable models than they would have been 15 years ago. Let's say we touched a little bit on your old the old days, what you did and what you sold back then. But from a profit perspective, I'm curious, like what what was the model? How did, I guess what were the margins? Like you said, you built some of the stuff. I have to assume that there was a dramatically higher margin on anything that you built, so that might have helped. Where were now, you making uh, money then? Like what was your winners? We were, to my knowledge, I'd heard about this amazing thing that they were doing in California, and they were buying 55-gallon drums of malt extract <laughs> and dispensing it by the pound. That kind of blew my, my mind. To my knowledge, nobody east of the Rockies would do it. In the early 80s, I had my main supplier start bringing in some drums for us. And initially, I just said light malt extract because you can add different grains to it. It's just basically a concentrated version of baseball. We ended up going to amber and dark and then eventually wheat, blah, 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 blah. But that was a good moneymaker for us because we were able to sell, if you wanted three and a half pounds, we could sell you three and a half pounds for considerably less than a three and a half pound can. And we were making more money. Mm -hmm. We were making as much selling it cheaper than we would have if we had sold the can, which was more expensive. And so a bigger return on from our end. And customers like the flexibility. If you wanted four pounds of light, two pounds of dark, you could do that. Yeah, so was you probably couldn't really do that with hops. I mean, to an extent, you can buy it cheaper the more you get, but it's not we dramatically were, lower like it would probably be with the malt extract. Well, we were buying hops in you know 11-pound bags and sometimes 44-pound bags and weighing out and packaging up that. For one thing, that gave us a lot more variety of things that we could – that we could offer very good profit margin, but of course it's labor intensive too. So you have to factor that in, but we also had, you know, we had slow slack times to where if you had some work that you could put one of your staff to do, then in the long run, it's still producing money. You yeah. know, nobody in the shop at that point, you know, so, but that changed, you know, after the hop crisis and everything, I'm trying to remember when that was 2007, 2008. And frankly, the distributors, their pop packaging was not any more attractive than ours. <laughs> These days, that's, that's not the case. You know, they've got decent information and very attractive, and we don't have to package it, spend the time. And if, if you've got cheap manpower, then buy it in bulk and weigh it out yourself, but especially if you can make it look attractive, which 
we didn't. <laughs> Ours is very utilitarian. Yeah. Well, I remember your competitor, I think Austin Homebrew Supply, they used to do the same thing with the malt extract. They'd put it in just a white container. There may have been a sticker on it, but that was it. Like, yeah, no one really yeah. cared about branding and stuff back then. We bought grief for my uh, – the very people selling me the bulk malt would give me grief about selling bulk malt. Really? And it's just like, well, you're not branding it. When you walk in, maybe not online, but if you walked in, and we were always more of a brick and mortar than we were an online shop or mail order shop, we'd have a label on the drum. This could be Mutton's Light Malt Extract, or it could be Grease Pilsner Malt Extract, or whatever it was that we were selling. We made very clear that it, what it was. So in a sense, we could brand it. And instead of embracing it, they, what they could have done is given us a label to put on the front, the face of the drum that said Breeze, you know, since 1898 or whatever it was, or whatever brand it was. They could have, they could have made that to where they had an ad on the face of the drum and taken advantage of it. But instead of just giving us greed for selling that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I know you did those homebrew competitions and events. Were those big money makers for you outside of just the people participating, buying you know, no, things from you? you? You never did that for to think that you were going to make money right then and there. That was to build business in the long run. Mm-hmm. The people that wanted to compete, they might brew. Some people would brew anyway, and they would just take some bottles and throw into a competition. And other people would brew for a competition. You know, you know they were to this day. There are people that want to enter every at least every major competition within a region or in and nationally so for your business at that point you mentioned the yellow pages that uh, for those people who were born after 1990 internet they uh, may <laughs> not know that we actually had to pay to advertise in the yellow pages oh that was very expensive but yeah. you you had to be there absolutely be there but what was your marketing plan like back then i, I was i'm interested to see how it changed so it's Talk a little bit. What, what did you do? Did you do what newspaper is, regulated? Did you do radio? What, like, what is this thing you call marketing plan? <laughs> I guess I didn't necessarily mean strategy. I just meant what did you do? <laughs> the Yellow Pages ate up most of our advertising dollars. And to be honest with you, advertising slash promotion was always one of the most frustrating parts of my business for the 42 years I was in it. Because you knew that you'd be better off if you promoted and advertise properly, but generally the kind of advertising that would be effective is advertising I couldn't afford, and the advertising I could afford was not particularly effective. So we did like the alternative paper in Houston, the Houston Press. We were advertisers in that pretty regularly for many years. The Houston Chronicle or the Houston Post, Post has been out of business for 32 years now or 30, yeah, 27 years now. <laughs> that, that was way out of our budget. It was it was just really hard to, to find a way to effectively advertise. Uh, I would always do it, you know, but not well. No great secret to what worked and what didn't. No. no. All right. So let's fast forward to 2011. This is when you moved into the bigger building, kind of. January of 12 is when we moved in, right, right after the first of the year. So. Okay. So yeah. at that point, you're you're going big. You're you're trying to kind of go big daddy on the whole thing, and, but there's. Obviously, more competition in Texas with other homebrew shops. There's internet sales, you know, even within Texas nationwide. Um, some of the bigger, like more beer and those guys, um, Northern Brewer, I'm sure were getting bigger at that point. Did, did that affect your margins from the, you know, 1980 days to the night to the 2011 days? I think by and large, we didn't see the online people as huge competitors. Uh, we tried to make the experience of going into the shop 
to be a, such a positive one that people would want to do that and perhaps even drive across town to do that. Online sales are nice, but it's hard for customers to ask questions and get immediate feedback and stuff like that. I mean, YouTube, I guess, helps in terms of showing you the proper way of doing things so that you don't screw up, but it's done interactive. That's why we were really, like I said earlier, we were primary a, a brick and mortar shop. And really from about 06, 07, all the way through 20 to the mid part of 2014, business was growing, despite the fact that there were a whole lot more shops competing. Rising tide lifted all boats in that situation. And we all started going downhill about the same time as well. And yet shops were still opening, even after the, long after the crest had, had passed. Scott, you're starting to sound like I'm a brewery owner, so uh, chill out a little bit. <laughs> so does this mean that you're going to start another podcast on how not to start a damn homebrew shop or <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm seeing more and more of the, the crossover, even in the wine and spirits side. It's just, there's, you know, yeah. it's just a crowded market for everybody. You know, every year you look at the Brewers Association numbers of the number of craft breweries in the country, and it's just going, wow, at what point are we going to saturate, you know? And maybe we're not there yet. You know, I hope not, but. From my perspective, I can tell you adamantly that we are, we, we crossed saturation a whole long time ago. The people that I have heard argue for the case that we haven't been saturated do not have MBAs. And so you can basically just take their opinion and throw it out the window because they're, and, and not that they have to have an MBA, but at the end of the day, like if you don't have business experience and you don't have an understanding of the model and the cycles, then shut the fuck up. Get out of the room. Like in my opinion, and again, my podcast, I'll say what I want, right? <laughs> right. But in, in your situation, then so, and this was one question I really wanted to ask you was, as that competition happened, as the things moved to the internet, you know, brick and mortar by and large, it has sort of said from Best Buy to um, Walmart that that's put pressure on pricing and that they've had to adjust pricing because for one, some customers don't care about service. There are definitely some that do. And obviously you seem like the kind of person who cultivated that. And clearly you're not in business for 45 years if you didn't. Like you, you must have done yeah. that. But did that affect your profitability and your margins? Do you think long term or short term when that competition really pushed against you? Did, did you have to lower pricing very often or do you remember? I think I felt the pressure. We tried to set our pricing kind of in the middle of the field. We did not want to be the cheap homebrew supplier because you might sell twice as much but make no more money, right, mm -hmm. if you've slapped your margins that much. On the other hand, we didn't want to be the expensive one either, where people would just go, well, I'll use you as a homebrew convenience store, but I don't want to buy my primary ingredients from you because you're too expensive. We were very price conscious. I think, if anything, we probably should have increased our margins more rather than cutting prices. What we were offering, I think, would have been perceived as worth a few extra cents, mm -hmm. dollar or two here. It could have extended. I don't think it necessarily would have changed in the long run, you know, how long we were going to be around. But it, it could have made life a lot more comfortable when things started getting tough. Yeah. I'm going to put a pin in that somewhat. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I did want to ask you, like, for one... Where do all these new customers come from? Like, at, So at the point in time when it's that competitive, you've got internet, you've got new guys opening, like you said, was it just that many new people trying to homebrew? Yeah, it really was. Again, traditionally, people would look in the yellow pages. That 
probably became less important in the last you know 15 years I would say we were still advertising because our clientele tended to be a little older and they tended to use things like the yellow pages much at longer after <laughs> younger generations did because you know most people who say yellow pages they look at you like WTF <laughs> I had to explain to my kids, I'm like, well, what they used to do is they would print the internet and then give it to you. <laughs> oh, I get it. That makes sense. So well, Good for you that you managed to figure that one out, how to translate <laughs> Looking back, I wish I – toward the end, we started raising prices here and there, not radically. And I got a lot less pushback than I was expecting. And I started looking at Northern Brewers' prices, and I'm going – Frankly, we're undercutting them. Why are we undercutting Northern Brewer? You know, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You know? No, not at all. <laughs> they're going to add shipping to it. Yeah. Well, and plus, you could order it today, but it's still going to be three or four days before you get it. Whereas if you could spend the same money or a little more, you could have it right here, right now, you know, put your hands on it. You know, I understand what you're asking, but I think to be successful these days, especially, you know, I would not want to undercut my pricing too much i think that's a mistake yeah okay well so we talked about all the new sales coming in and i again i want the third segment to kind of be the story of what went wrong and how it came down but do you want to foreshadow where did they all go like so if everyone is learning to homebrew and getting excited about homebrewing in 2015 did they just stop no it was not a it was word of mouth joe six packers homebrewer for five years he's got three of his neighbors turned on and he drags them into the shop and gets them to uh get kits and get get them enthused and that's how it traditionally worked word of mouth was always way more effective for us than our feeble attempts at advertising etc cetera, etc cetera. always better because people believed her friends whereas if you read it in the paper or read it in an ad somewhere you think well they're trying to talk me into something, you know, whereas they've already experienced. They know the beer's good because their buddy's making it. And they like what he's brewing. Yeah. So do you think these people just stopped homebrewing or what happened in 2015 or after 2015 where, you know, the revenue obviously went down and the, you, you passed yeah. your peak? Like, where'd they go? Like, did well, this stop? I don't know if you know or, or not. I can send you the leak, but we made the front page of the Houston Chronicle on a Sunday in August of 2019. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'll send you the link to that. This was an institution. We were the only shop in town for probably more than half of the 48 years we were open. It's not a, a something you can just say, this is the reason why it, this one thing is the reason why. I think it was a combination of things. I think people that used to be homebrewers, avid homebrewers, were now avid craft brewery taproom customers mm -hmm. i think that was certainly a part of it i don't think that explains everything i think internet hurt mom and pops but as you recall anheuser-busch bought northern brewer and then they flipped it in, what two years mm -hmm. so they weren't doing all that well i heard they i heard from one of our big uh, suppliers that their number of hits was down like 50 percent hmm. you know so you were talking about rising tide lifts all boats. Well, the low tide is dropping everybody. <laughs> Everyone's going and, down together. Yeah. yeah. I also think that uh, this probably doesn't sound 
good. We, for many years, customers would age out. Some would die. Some people just get too old to really care about it. Or you got busy, you had kids, you're going to soccer games, or softball games or whatever. Sometimes those people would pick it back up. But I just think historically there's a turnover of customers just like there is in any business. And you think the new generation always, wasn't getting into it quite as much maybe that the, the younger. Exactly. So we definitely have millennial customers coming in. These aren't real numbers, but it seems like for every 10 people that had given up the hobby, we were only getting in two or three new customers to replace them. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm and very comfortable reporting on this podcast that the millennials killed craft beer. I, I, I can go with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and some of these, these millennials were really good customers and they were very active in the homebrew club. But again, we needed more of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I'm just saying when you're talk, speaking in general terms, I'm thinking these are the the things that I saw eroding business. You know, so on the internet thing, I'll give you an example of something that happened to me in the last couple of three months that we were in business. I had somebody come in, and it was a a little wine filter, a little plate and frame filter for making like five and six gallon batches, and he had seen an ad. Some guy in Michigan was selling that filter, shipping included, for less than I was paying for it. Because <laughs> the, the manufacturer was in Canada, and he must have been near Detroit, and they must have been right uh, there. It was closer. Yeah. Yeah. He just he was at London, Ontario, I think. It's right. Anyway, he was going just across the border, buying the same thing. And if he was making... 10, 20 bucks on a, at a, at a pot, then how can you, it's like, how can you compete with that? You know, and it's, you know, it wasn't, it didn't have a major impact because we didn't sell that many filters, but our sales of those filters had, had crawled, gone to virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. And when you can buy it, I mean, I should have bought them from you because it was almost cheaper than, you know, I mean, it was literally the same price that uh, if not a little cheaper than where I was buying them from wholesale. Yeah, that changes the dynamic a lot. That's uh, yeah, hmm, interesting. So, but that was you know that I don't know. If I would say that was common, but that does give an example of how things work. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you because this is a thing that especially craft breweries go through a lot is the decision to expand. So uh, we were talking about kind of what changed in 2015, but in 2011. You felt like you know things were going to get better, and in your defense, they did for years. But when you decided to go to three times the size, what gave you the confidence to do that? Why did you know that twenty five hundred square feet was not going to be good enough for Defalco's for the next few years? We were just exploding at the seams there, at the twenty five hundred square feet. I don't think we could have done this and that to, to make better use of the space, but. It was going to very. It was very limiting. My buddy who had a shop in Dallas, he just closed, by the way, this last September, uh, and his shop was basically the same age mine was, uh, the same startup time. Uh, we were just talking about how much we were selling versus the square footage, and it was just amazing how much sales we were generating per square foot for the year. I, I think there was a point there where it was there was a limit on how much you could turn over. 
I mean, you could have a storage nearby or whatever, but it was just when you can't display things, especially again, we're brick and mortar. Remember, you know, if we mm-hmm. were, uh, if we were online, you just get a bigger warehouse. <laughs> so, so you think with the bigger space that you were getting larger orders so that people would come in for one thing and buy six because they saw the yeah. display? Okay. Yeah, that was one that we did. Another thing that we did was long before this, we had changed from when somebody bought a kit and gave them a can of hopped extract and sugar, we had replaced that sugar with a couple of pounds of bulk malt and an ounce of hops, or we had some brewery grade corn syrup if you still wanted the beer to be light it, it was it was what sugar should have been but wasn't it, <laughs> it made kept the beer light in body but it didn't give you any it was high maltose corn syrup is what it was i think miller uses it miller light to be honest with you it, it worked really well but we started deciding that we didn't want to do this anymore we didn't want to give people hopped extract so we were making up our own recipe kits for beginners and you know, for instance, uh, American Pale Ale might have uh, five pounds of light malt extract and a pound and a half of amber malt in it, or something like that. And we would put this malt in a in a heat seal bag, and we would vacuum pack it and heat seal it, and put it in the box, and we would have a couple of ounces of hops and some dried yeast and some priming sugar. And the only place you would get this recipe is from us, right? Because it's not like you were seeing a, a can of Cooper's Real Ale or something like that. It was becomes a proprietary one. branded recipe that it's you the, have. Yeah. Plus, it was less expensive. And if you followed the directions, and these were we really believed in the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid. For our beginners, if you followed the instructions, you got a very good product, the very first rattle out of the barrel. And there was, I think, more a sense of achievement on the part of the customer because they felt like they actually brewed that rather mm-hmm. than I can make instant oatmeal, but I don't ever feel like I've really achieved anything, right? <laughs> well, if you put raisins and honey in it or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gourmet instant oatmeal, okay. Those things went so quickly that we started doing our basic brew recipes, which is where you would the same thing, only you would have a bag of grain to steep in addition to it. We just had this big old wire, a set of wire shelving with all these recipes on it. And people would come in to buy one thing and then walk out with three, you know. So, because we had real, we had nice labels that we'd put on the outside of the boxes. I mean, that's one way that we were to make use of the extra space. Well, so one question people tend to forget is, uh, you know, it sounds all sexy and cool when demand is such that it forces you to increase your size and forces you to increase your inventory dramatically. Uh, I'm sure the inventory wasn't necessarily 3X, but it was definitely bigger. How'd you pay for that? You can't just walk in and be like, hey, buddy, I got more sales. I'm just going to use cash flow to fund it because you're only making, what, 20 cents a dollar at best? Yeah, we used cash flow to fund it. We were bringing in lots of cash when we were in the 2,500 square foot store and we knew that if we wanted to go beyond where we were that we needed more space and sure enough it was no surprise to me when we got into the bigger space that business really took off so perhaps you could argue that some of that growth would have happened even if we had stayed but I don't think certainly not all of it and maybe not even most of it of the increase yeah, not if it was based primarily or at least in part yeah. on the displays. That's, yeah. It was a, an extra 
I want to say about an extra $2,500 to $3,000 for the rent. So, I mean, it wasn't that much more. I mean, it was more rent. Utilities were higher, too, because mm-hmm. it was more more space. It was a, about 2,000 square feet area in the back of the shop. It was an old supermarket. So we, we were in the, the rear part of the, the store, which would have, the customers never saw. That was unheated and uncooled. But that's where we had pallets of carboys, soda canisters, and that sort of stuff. So buckets. So big question. In hindsight, could you have sustained your business? In other words, would you still be alive if you had stayed at the smaller place and tried to make that work? Was the big overhead one of the things that finally was the nail in your coffin? Would we still be alive now? Today, yeah. Probably not. Why do you think so? I think because my friend in Dallas, <laughs> he always, our business has kind of followed each other. When we moved, our business took off. His grew a little bit, but not much. He was thinking about moving for forever. He never moved, and he's closed. He's a good friend of Kelly Harris, homebrew headquarters in Dallas. Good, good buddy, but, I mean, he just... I certainly would not have wanted to try to keep my business open during this pandemic. You might argue if it hadn't been for the pandemic, maybe if we had moved or if we had maybe if, I don't think it's A or B. I think there would have been C. C would have been a space that's maybe uh, 4,000 square feet or more rent, but not as much more rent. Something that would have mm-hmm. something in the middle might have. I mean, 2020 hindsight, maybe, but. Again, the rent wasn't that much more. So it's it's just at the end, the rent was, you know, a real ball and chain. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. But I was thinking, mate, if you just get out of this lease, you can move somewhere else. And it's just like, okay, your business dropped 15% last year. What's to, Who's to say it's not going to drop 15% even if you move? You know, I mean, so even if you somehow are able to, to relocate and you're going to, this is going to impact your business relocating. And then on top of that, if business is still shrinking, who's to say you're not going to be in the same position in another year, you know, that's the game, right? That's why businesses risk. It sucks. And at that point I decided, you know, I was coming up on 67 years old at the time. And I just said, it's time. Well, I definitely will want to get into more of kind of how that went down and, and what uh, what your feelings were around it. But first, let's take a quick sanity check, and then uh, we'll be right back. Hey, sounds good. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Alright, so welcome back. 
I want to talk a little bit about kind of the last eight years of your business. I think that was the the moving into the big space, the getting the extra square footage, the extra inventory, and it was that that big growth and then what sounds like a slow decline. I'm curious how that turned out, but on your website, you said that you peaked in 2014 and you closed five years later in 2019. Let's talk a little about the peak. Uh, and we have obviously talked around it, but you said as far as like the catalyst of why you think there was that many more people was just, it just gained popularity at that time, maybe as part of the craft beer popularity as well, but breweries still stayed popular later and then it kind of declined. So do you think there was something else driving that excitement for, for homebrewing? No, I think I think a lot of it was shared excitement of trying new things rather than how many different hazy pale ales and IPAs we can make, you know? Yeah. People come in and make a brown ale one time and make a pale ale the next and a saison the next. And, you know, they were, they were exploring the different styles of beer, which is fun to do as a brewer. I enjoyed it as a brewer. But, of course, you can just walk to or drive to your nearest brew pub brewery tap room and experience the same variety without committing all that time and effort and energy and money. Well, I've heard that isn't one of the reasons uh, in the recent, I don't know where I read, but from more than one person that the the homebrew kind of golden age was driven by a lack of availability to the consumer. And sort. in the, in the, the early growth of homebrewing, when it got legalized in 78, the bill passed in 78, it was, it became law in 79. There was some PR about that and that drove some business for a while. Of course, you know, there wasn't much of a follow-up to that. It didn't really take off again until 1990, and then it grew until the end of 95, and then there was that crack brewery crash in 96, 97. Mm-hmm. Homebrew shops crashed at the same time. A lot of shops that had just opened up, they were the first to go. So they just didn't have a, a longer view of things, I guess. So I'm going to ask you to speculate like one of those uh, annoying people that write in magazines, but... So if, if they both were aligned and craft beer or craft brewing and home brewing both crashed together in the late 90s, then you say that home brewing has crashed in the late double aughts, whatever, the 17s. How come craft breweries have not? Any theories? That's a good question. Maybe the clientele was different, you know. I, I think, again, what was driving things in the 90s were people were discovering new beers they couldn't always get those where they lived. They got into making it, or maybe you could get it, but it was shipped from halfway across the country, and maybe the freshness wasn't all that. You know, I'm just saying. I think I think there was uh, unavailability was a very important part of it. I was kind of surprised as suddenly we weren't seeing craft beers in our market from six states away like mm-hmm. we did in the early days of the craft brewery movement. Suddenly, as Local breweries became a bigger thing than that. I think that was a different dynamic there. And maybe that's the reason. Suddenly you could just get anything you want. Let's face it. I mean, uh, Houston, even in the mid to late 90s, we never had that many brew pubs and crack breweries open in Houston. We had maybe 10 at one time, maybe. Now there's, what, 60 or 70 in the Houston area. I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing, you know. I think the official... Uh, measurement is as a fuckload is the, the yeah. Yeah. and I'm, I'm interested to see i do think that there probably is more to the correlation than meets the eye uh, just in the sense of like i said on earlier episodes that there was definitely been some government prop up 
with the EIDL through COVID, I think there's actually way more loss than it looks like as far as the lack of profitability and just, you know, tons of breweries. I don't, I, and I mentioned this before the show, I don't know a single one that's profitable, at least not consistently. And so if you take a 12 month trailing, they're not. Guys are going to have a great June, July, August, or, you know, get a new distributor in a new state and fund them and send things over. But long term for the year, there's nobody I know that's calling me being like, dude, let's well, go have a beer. I'm so excited. It's not happening. Yeah. I think the pandemic is having an impact on that. You know, I think there are people still very reluctant to go out. What's the difference between getting by and getting by with some comfort might be 15% of your clientele staying away, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is your profit margin in most yeah, breweries. So, right yeah. there. Or less. That, and or, just, you know, <laughs> this ever, never-ending pandemic, you know, yeah. it's just, it's tough. I don't blame people for being cautious. You know, maybe you're fine, but maybe you've got a elderly parent living with you, or maybe you have a special needs child, or, you know, I mean, there are lots of reasons. And sometimes they're not obvious. There's no, it's no longer um, worth the risk in most cases. So I, I don't know if you can write everything off to that, but I think that's a bigger factor than, than meets the eye. I can't imagine trying to run my homebrew shop when you can't let people in the shop. You might as well just order online. You know? That was a big part of what you did. It was the experience of coming in, sure. Exactly. So let's talk about your glory years um, as far as, and I, I do want to preface this as saying from – from a numbers perspective solely, but I'm assuming that the 2011 to 2015 were some of the most profitable or at least the highest revenue months or years that you had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 20, I would say start with like 08 to 09 all the way through probably the end of 14. It's hard to, my view of 2014, we opened up a second location around Labor Day of 2014. And that changes my perspective on things because suddenly you can look at the total numbers of sales that we were doing. Between the two. We also had an expansion of overhead there, too. I'd be very frank to tell you right now, it was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. And if I hadn't opened that second store, we would have lasted longer. It just but, led you more faster. Yeah. But I don't know that in the long run it would have made a difference. You know, maybe – Instead of closing in 2019, maybe we would have made it until the pandemic shut down. Then it's just like, well, you know, are we going to, are we going to survive this? <laughs> you make it just long enough to struggle six more months or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of my questions is what's going to be is during those months when, or the years that you had the highest overall revenue, were those your pr- most profitable years? Or did oh, yeah. you have some years that had done better at a lower overhead or whatever? I don't think so. I think we were doing really well. I had at one point, including myself, 10 people on full-time people on payroll. Oh, we were busy. I mean, we were, I mean, everybody was working pretty hard and everybody was pretty happy because I always, I had learned back in the late nineties to put an incentive, you know, we paid you a certain amount per hour. And then based on what the overall shop sales were for that month, it would be a bonus as well. So everybody was interested in not them making the sales, but the shop making the sales. So yeah, we're all on the same they, team. They were doing well. Obviously, when you know, there's books written about this all over the place, but I'm just curious because you get that ability to look back and kind of think about the things you did. But when when the times are good like that, when profit's strong, when revenue's um, consistently growing, many businesses, including mine, we, we have a tendency to make some bad uh, habits and sort of like, you know, fuck it, next day air that. I need it now. And, and we... We, we kind of blow some cash or we just, we sort of, 
I guess, you know, get greedy, get sloppy is a good way of saying it. Were there any of those sort of situations that you look back and like, man, that other than opening the second store that you were like, man, no. that was a bad decision? Or No, I think the uh, the second store was a bad enough decision. <laughs> we'll just stick with that one. <laughs> okay. Obviously, if you expand that quickly, you're doing that well, you open another store, something was unique and different. And as much as you're a nice guy, I don't think that one employee can make the difference, but what did the Falcos do so differently in the market that made you guys so popular that you were doing so well? We had a very knowledgeable staff and very much engaged. People would walk in, they could ask questions, and some of them were hesitant to ask questions. It's like, well, this is a dumb question, but so-and-so. And, you know, they were sincere questions. Maybe if they'd have thought it out, maybe they wouldn't have asked them. But I'm just saying, we we had a great selection. Our price was Our prices were reasonable. They weren't super cheap, but they were reasonable. We, we ju- it was just a whole pack. Well, talk to me about the, the employees that were able to answer these questions. Obviously, that has to come from the top. So how how did you make the conscious decision to set about building a team of people that were able to put up? And, and I will preface that absolutely that I can't fucking stand homebrewers. And, and it's not overall, it's not true, right? Like there's a bunch of them that are super nice and I can name three that I'm friends with. But as a group, they're, they're an obnoxious bunch. And so you had to consciously t- teach people to be cool in that situation. How'd you do it? I'm, I'm really honestly curious. Wow. Uh, that's interesting. I guess I'm not shocked to hear that somebody, the, the brewers, the commercial brewers roll their eyes at home brewers and think they, <laughs> think yeah. they know more than they actually know, you know, right? We do get a lot of that, like, you know, yeast pitches and this is stuff that they have no half of and they, they try to expand or pretend that they know more than they do sure i don't drink home or i stopped drinking homebrew beer just because you know 90 percent of the time it was bad and you just didn't want to tell the guy that and obviously it's going to affect your relationship so as a commercial yeah. brewer we i probably do have a different perspective let's extrapolate that out i can go into target right now and they're going to be fucking douchebags to me so if you had a team of people who cared you had to have somehow cultivated that what did you do to cultivate that i think it was I think it was important for us that people not think that these guys think they know they know everything there is to know. Because if they knew everything there was to know, why are they working at a homebrew shop for me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were at one time uh, jokingly referred to as the Triple A team in in the Houston area for the crap breweries. I mean, crap breweries would come in and pick off employees pretty regularly. There. Oh, really? They poach you? So uh, uh, we had a really good working relationship with the craft brewers in town and they were as devastated if not more so than the homebrewers were i just think it was making sure that our people knew their stuff but they weren't arrogant about what they knew and that there was always an opportunity to learn more from my perspective one of the great things about having all these customers coming in is that for instance myself i'm a formulating fool i mean i can formulate the piece I don't have time or energy or whatever to make all these beers. So I could come in and work up a relationship with some customers and have them. They're doing the experimentation for me. So I'm learning from what they're brewing. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, it was a give and take kind of thing in that respect. So the homebrew club was, uh, we had a pretty, they were serious about beer, but very little else. (laughs) So a very irreverent club. So, uh, and they're still alive. So still surviving. That's cool. Some of those the clubs that are a really tight group, they, uh, they're the exception to the average homebrew rule. That, that's for sure. Yeah. So talk to me about what happened in 2015. And so I, 
for one, I'm assuming that it wasn't a straight line down from 15 to 19. There, there had to have been some. It was, wind. it was a spiral. Yeah, for sure. The month before we opened the second shop, so we were still doing comparing month to month, year to year. We were down, I don't know, about 10 or 15%. And it was still like the best August on the books, except for the previous year sort of thing. Right. So it wasn't really alarming. Then we opened the second shop, and then our numbers were down noticeably at the main shop. Some of that was just cannibalization, even though we were 20 20 miles away. That far. It was that far, and it was the Gulf Freeway, which is a nightmare at times. So... I was surprised, but look at the combined sales, and they were kind of comparable. But again, a lot more overhead. You know, we bought the we bought the property. We had a couple employees, and we never had a big staff there. And it was a four thousand square foot space, something that perhaps we should have had in town. And it was just we had a pretty good December, but by and large, the numbers just were. I think we were down like ten to fifteen percent for twenty fifteen over say twenty. 14. And then, yeah, it was just kind of a slow and steady. We we picked up a little bit when we, we closed the shop down in the Clear Lake area and we sold the property. We picked up some of the business that we were splitting, if you understand. we were, Some of that mm-hmm. business going to our second shop was coming to the main shop. Not a lot, but suddenly we weren't hemorrhaging cash anymore. And we, But unfortunately, we we're still paying off, you know, the initial inventory and all that. That was not a real big deal because when we shut that shop down, we had a big sale there at the end. And it probably, the, in fact, I think the best day we had was the very last day at that shop because we you know, had a big sale because we'd rather sell it than move it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Generate something out of it and let it sit in the back. Yeah. yeah. Year over year, like once you got rid of that place, what, it was still slowing down consistently? Like, it was still that three quarters of a year after we sh- shut that shop down, I think our sales were actually up versus the previous year. But then the following year, which was 2017, well, things were back down again. And we had Hurricane Harp. I remember that. that didn't, not only, I mean, didn't really affect us personally that much. When your customers have houses that are flooded, the last thing they are worried about is making wine and beer and cider and meat sort of thing. Got, <laughs> They're drinking more of it. They're just not making it. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. So, you know, year over year, it starts to slow down, 17, you get this disaster. What kinds of things were you doing to combat it? I'm curious how that looks, you know, like, were you just kind of like, hey, we're doing what we're doing. This is our model. This is our routine. Or did you have tried some dramatic changes and pivots? To- we were we tried more advertising and stuff like that. But it just, you know, we got with the folks at the Houston Press. That was our big print advertising. Was, I mean, we had more money to spend on advertising because we were getting, we've been cutting back increasingly on the yellow pages because it was just <laughs> not. At the same time, I'm reading national reports, mainstream financial magazines about, oh, the homebrew industry is down 30% over its peak. And so we're sitting there going, you know, it sounds like it's not only us, you know, so kind of discouraging. You keep seeing back in the the mid-90s when things crashed, we saw it hit bottom and then it sort of slowly came back up again. Well, we were still looking for the bottom and the bottom just never happened. Yeah. So you kept thinking like next year will be the year. Yeah. And I, I think this is a lesson that for me personally, I struggled with a lot. My wife and I literally sat at, in our office and talked about closing the brewery three distinct times. Like we were 
technically, and actually each of those times, we were technically insolvent at that point, meaning that, yeah. you know, we're, we're looking at 25 grand we can't pay for next month's operating expenses or whatever. But and we pivoted and we made some things work. We made some changes and it did turn around you know, each of those times, but they could have just easily not, right, is my point. So how, what you were doing was sort of the same thing. You're like, hey, we're going to, we're going to move this way. We're going to, well, that year was Harvey. Yeah. So that's obviously, what do we do? And yeah, and- that, that's hard to compare that. One thing that we did is, I mean, employees would leave to move on to other things, and we simply would not replace them. Mm. At the end, we had four employees and a part-timer. And actually, at the very end, one of the one of the four employees had scheduled months beforehand a month off, which was fine. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it's a far cry from the old days when we had 10 full-timers working. So Yeah, right. We reduced our overhead in that respect, but. So I'm curious how many times in that two years, maybe that like you, you know, between 17 and 19, was there a time or multiple times where you just, you pick your head up, you go look in the QuickBooks, you know, like, this is bullshit. I got to get out. And then you didn't. And and what was your motivation to not? I, uh, I had bought a van, a brand new van in 2013, right at the peak, paid cash for it because we knew we were opening the second store and we needed a vehicle to transport product from the main store to the satellite store. And it was also kind of my personal vehicle as well. And we got to that point in June of 2019. I'm just going, you know, I can't really justify the business having a vehicle when we don't have a second store. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I sold it. I think we got $6,000 for it. You know, it helped me make July rent. Then the end of July came and it's like, oh, we can't pay rent on time. We can't make payroll on time. It was just like, okay, that's it. And we, we paid rent late and we got salaries paid. But it was like, we, we can't do this. You know, We're going to end up further in the hole. So we uh, made the decision to shut down, sent out a newsletter telling people what was going on. We had, I don't know, 2,000 people on our mailing list. So, so that was said, one of my questions was, how did you know it was time? And for you, you knew it was time because you ran out of money. Yeah, yeah. It was essentially what happened with me too. So I ended up selling my business in September and it, I don't think I could have paid the rent in October if I'd wanted to. <laughs> so, yeah. Is it still open? Uh, yeah. The new people have taken it, invested some money in it and they're, you know, doing some new things with it. We, we did all mixed culture beer. They're doing some pure culture things and really trying to revamp the brewery in a way that I had made a list of those ideas to do them. And I just wasn't willing to pivot and invest another 75 grand to do it, you know, but that's one of my other questions. Obviously your sales have been declined since 2014. Why did you make the decision not to, to sell the existing business? Um, Anybody that looked at those books would have said, "Mm, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. I just, and we ended up, I, I, I was worried because I had a line of credit and credit card debt. That was pretty significant at that point. Mm. It was just like, <laughs> Am I going to be able to sell this for enough money to even pay those off? You know, so uh, so we made the we made the announcement, and we were open for four more weeks after that, and it was the busiest month. That, you know, it wasn't a calendar month, but it was a four week month, and it was the busiest month we had had in three or four years. People you hadn't seen in years were probably coming out of the woodworks to buy from you one oh, more yeah. time, and discounts, you know. Started with 20%. Then, you know, we sent out another newsletter and it's, you know, it's now 33%. Then the last uh, weekend, it was like 50%. And we were selling off all the fixtures, a little bit of everything. So the response from the community was good. They obviously, you know, rose yeah. to, to do that. And that's, that's great. So 
I have to assume it's been a bit of a struggle. One of the reasons I thought that is that you still have the website up. So is that to well, communicate people, with them or is it because you're having a hard time letting go? I mean, either could be true. So. Well, I'm, I'm kind of at that point now to where do I want to keep this going? I may pull the plug on it or I may just move it to the site that it's on right now. I mean, the where so, it's landed is for actually selling stuff and I'm not trying to sell anything, obviously. Mm. It's really just an informational site right now. I may pull the plug on that in the next several months because it's just that time. Well, one of the questions I had was, did you keep it because you thought you might reopen one day? No. no. <laughs> that was like, hold on, you can think about the answer. You don't need to just spit yeah. out. Actually, I had a dream about that like two or three nights ago. And it's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So an important question I was going to ask you is two and a half years later, you've had all the hindsight in the world. You've had all these dreams and time to sleep. Was closing the right move? Absolutely. In that time, has the industry changed at all in a way that would make you profitable? Or do you think it's been worse? I think it's worse because of the pandemic. Now, I don't know that the pandemic is going to go away. Maybe it's just going to be the new normal or whatever the, the new normal is. Maybe conditions will change at that time. I I would not want to try to open or operate a shop, any kind of small business right now when you never know if you're going to be able to keep the doors open and have people coming in the door, you know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mean, either. That's why but, I sold. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, if you wanted to do online, you could. But again, I don't think that's really that much better. I mean, you could have a pretty low overhead because you could have some cheap warehouse space and that sort of thing. But no, frankly, if uh, I've always kind of told myself, if I wanted to just be an online retailer, why do homebrewing? Because mm. I could do something actually where I can make a decent living. <laughs> you know, I mean, make some real money selling stuff online rather than once again, old, Scott. You know? You're starting to sound like a brewery owner. So uh, welcome to the team. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to make money, you can work. What so? Let me give you an example. And this is very early, right? But I sold my brewery in September and from January through the end of February, I will have made more money personally than I made the entire year with the brewery. So <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's one of those. And I, I work half as hard. It's not even close. I actually miss hard work somewhat <laughs> because of it. Well, but. let me tell you something. I'm on Social Security right now and my Social Security ch check is more money than I was taking home at the end. Yeah. So it's pretty bad, you know. Well, congratulations. You paid into it your whole life. You deserve it. So, yeah, enjoy. Yeah. is isn't all that great because I didn't make big bucks ever, you know. I had some, I had some really good years, you know. But uh, in, in the real world, people would laugh if they knew how much I was making. Man, right. And, and you had to working. pay for your own insurance? What the hell? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was working six, seven days a week, you know. So. One last question in this segment, and then I'll take a quick break. But I wanted to ask, and, and I've told you this from the beginning, I don't need you to call people out, but I have a quick question. So according to Google, Greater Houston still has four homebrew shops open. Uh, any idea yep. what they're doing right. differently to hang on? Like, have these guys figured out some pivot or some mentality, or are they just all eating ramen they're noodles? Small, they're small shops with small overhead. Mm. And uh, three of them are operated by the owners with very little help. And the fourth one, he's working in the beer industry, and he has got uh, somebody running his shop for him. Mm. And uh, it's like my local guy here. It's got to keep the shop small, keep, keep your, your staff small, 
keep your overhead low, 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 because that's yeah. the only way to survive, I think. Lower your expectations a little bit. All right. Well, after that, I think I need to go open a window and let some sunshine in. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. (laughs) So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, Scott, I am not going to let you get out of here without giving you a chance to stick up for all those home brewers out there. We mentioned it earlier, but uh, those guys are all thinking that brewing at home qualifies them to be the next great master brewer at their local uh, brew pub down the street. Just, I'm curious from your perspective, did you ever get a chance to brew on commercial equipment? I've brewed on commercials. I've brewed in one in Great Britain. <laughs> I've brewed at the old brewery at St. Arnold, where I got married, by the way. I have brewed uh, at Whole Foods in Houston. I brewed on the Eighth Wonder system, a 20-barrel system in Houston, where I end up working after my shop closed. I was brewing beer there commercially. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So then, good. I was hoping that you had some experience to give me the difference, like, or I guess give them the difference. So we have home brewers that listen to the show, obviously, that are dreaming of going pro, um, even though I'm trying my best to talk them out of it. But what? how, <laughs> how would you describe the difference in the kind of the structure of home brewing versus commercial brewing? Anything goes in home brewing. Let's face it. If you only make yourself happy, for a lot of people, that's fine. You know, right? Yeah. You, you may be making stuff that, that slugs won't touch. But if you like it, then it's a success, right? When it's got booze in it, so it's easy to fall in love with it, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when you're brewing on a commercial level, you know, it better be something that other people like. And not in, I won't say 100%, but probably in 99.9%, you better have the ability to brew beer consistently. If you're, you know, if you're, if, if you're brewing old froth and slosh, it better taste the same today, next week, next month, next year. You can tweak. But with the idea in mind that the tweak is the new thing, it's not like you don't want the flavor being sweet this month and hoppy next month and diacetyl the following month or DMS the next month. (laughs) Just like. Are you talking about a specific brewery? (laughs) I think I've been there. (laughs) Your name here. (laughs) Yeah, right. One of the things that I've seen, and I'm curious if if you've experienced this at all, but I think home brewers are uniquely unqualified to deal with yeast. That seems to be one of the ones that... It's amazing to me how many breweries are using dried yeast these days. You know, the quality of dry yeast is so much better than it was. This is probably... I think even more, almost even more than the different grains that we have available, different hops, the quality of yeast in general, but specifically dried yeast. I mean, up until the mid to late 80s when Whitbread dried yeast came out, dried yeast was synonymous with crap. 
Mm-hmm. We did. I homebrewed in 2000 when I started, and at that point, yeah. like, they would make fun of you if you wanted to use dry yeast. Well, and even as as recently as like the mid 90s, you could get some decent dried yeast that you could actually use in a commercial setting, but you didn't have. I mean, the differences between brand A, B, C, D, and F weren't weren't really great. It's not like you had a German ale yeast, a sweet malty British yeast, and a dry British yeast, and there were different strains, but these days it's just the, the variety is just amazing. We've got one that's made up here called Philly Sour. And I've heard of this one, but uh, I've never used it. Yeah. Yeah. I have not used it either. But the guy that, that developed this strain lives nearby and he's hmm. made presentations to my local homebrew club here in town. It's just a dried yeast. You pour it in. And in fact I noticed that some of the Carlson, the, the big supplier, has got some sour recipes now and they're including the philly sour yeast in it (laughs) so you don't apparently there's no real concern about cross-contamination it's really exciting and so perhaps if you don't have experience with uh, microbiology (laughs) yeast handling might be something that maybe that you don't really want to you know you know unless you plan on hiring somebody to do it at eighth wonder we had we had a yeast wrangler you know what can i say she was really good at what she did so. Obviously, that's expensive, but if you can do it, that's the best way to handle yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they had a lab. We were making 10, 12,000 barrels a year. Just so. Especially in Texas. It just, and obviously, I live in Texas. So that's going to be why I'm going to pick on them. I'm sure it's other states as well. But a lot of the beers I tasted, like you could just tell that they were either uh, not attenuated correctly, uh, which could sometimes be from the recipe, usually the least yeast handling, just kind of you know pitch rates and being in a hurry. And that's a big one that... I feel like homebrewers don't, and that, there's definitely some exceptions, and I have met them. That actually, uh, guy Les he used to work at Southerly. He works at a distillery down by you, down by where he used to be, down in Houston. And he was a homebrewer and, and scaled up, and has been making fantastic stuff. But that's the exception, not the rule. They just need to be careful. Go get some education on how to brew for real. I would wholeheartedly agree that yeast handling is an underappreciated aspect of going commercial and if you don't know what you're doing stick to the dry you can still get good product and still make your sales but you know if you want to go to the ultimate you know you get your yeast strains and you get somebody that either you learn how to handle them you hire somebody that does you know Mm -hmm. maybe a part-time grad student or something like that well now there's a lot of local guys too so there's a local yeast bank in uh or yeast lab in san antonio that will bank your yeast for you and they'll give you a pitchable batch of whatever you want it to be so in fact, they would do it for ours, and we had a mixed culture, and they were even willing to do it for the whatever 18 strains and stuff we had floating around in ours. Well, let's shift gears. If uh, you guys have really good ears, you may be able to hear Scott's wife on the phone in the background, and I wanted to bring up that later this month, I am actually going to be interviewing my lovely wife about her perspective. I mean, she's my partner. She handled half the business. I handled the other half for the majority of our time in the beer. So I'm a little terrified, to be honest, of interviewing her about her experience of working at the brewery and what she saw was wrong. <laughs> But uh, so, but you're married. Obviously, your wife went through some of this, you know, failure at the end as, as much as you did. And I'm just curious how she felt about it and where she stood as far as the, you know, when when you closed, was it the right time for her? Or did she, you know, whatever? I'm, I'm not gonna put words in your mouth. I mean, my wife is a very very busy person. She's pretty high up, upper management, travels a lot. I mean, she's she's kind of in her her own world. I think she was. Her concern was when I decided that we had to pull the plug, was that when we walked away that we weren't 
ceiling hawk up to our ears or something. And mm-hmm. we were able to walk away and there's still, there's a little bit of money left even, which I would have never guessed when I decided to pull the plug. So <laughs> She's had to obviously support you. And I'm sure that that was traumatic experience. You know, you just did it for two gosh dang long. Even if you hated the job, you'd feel like lost when you walked away. But yeah, I, yeah, I still miss, I still miss it. Yeah, you bet. I miss my customers. I miss my friends who were who I was working with. But you know, it's it was what it was. And uh, <laughs> yeah. there's not really anything I think that I could have really done. I can look back on it and go, well, if, if I could change, I'd do this and that. But I mean, nobody has that kind of hindsight. We had such a growth cycle there between the early 2000s and 2014 that you kind of like business is going to keep going, right? And then it didn't. <laughs> But yeah. it didn't just wasn't like ninety five to ninety six when the when the rug was just pulled out and you just bottomed out and then it was a slow recovery. It just kept dropping and dropping and dropping, you know. And uh you kept feeling like uh, the the lights at the end of the tunnel <laughs> just never happened. Maybe, yeah. maybe it was uh some asshole with a flashlight <laughs> <laughs> waving it around. Come on, boy. Yeah. yeah, that's that's funny. All right, so advice time. Some guy walks up to you and says he wants to open up a homebrew shop. What do you tell him? I'm going to tell him, keep your shop size small if you need to rent uh, storage units nearby or if you, get a, if you get a really good deal on real estate. But keep your rent low and keep your staff low. And if you've got to close one day a week or two days a week, then do it. You just got to keep your overhead low. That's who I see surviving these days. I mean, I look around and a lot of the big shops, I mean, I mean, we had 7,000 square feet. We didn't survive. It's too much. Yeah. He, my local guy here, he, he can't have 1,200 square feet. And half of that's downstairs where he's left stored. You know? <laughs> Tiny shop. But he's, I mean, for what he's got, for his size, he's he's stocking well. I mean, he's he knows what he's doing. More power to him. I'm not sure that would be me. I'm not sure I'd want to run the shop by myself, but he's happy doing it, so. Everyone's life's different as long as you're happy. As long as you know what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. He's a a photographer. He goes to the the Phillies games, the Flyers games, and the Eagles games, 76ers, and takes photographs for the teams or for the the Inquirer or, you know, whatever here. So he's got another another source of income. He's been doing that forever, too. Well, so looking back, what are you the most proud of in the, was it 40? How many? Two years? You have the longest career in craft beer of anyone I've interviewed so far. I'm really curious what your most proudest moment was. Uh, proudest moment? I think the relationships that I developed with both home brewers and the people that went on to brew commercially. When we closed our store, the last day, official day was the 8th of September. The next day, Brock had set us up to uh, have a farewell party at St. Arnold's. Hmm. That's cool. We had we had at least two hundred people there. That's cool. And he's, he had, yeah, he's got a real what we call Brock World. It's if you've not been to Houston recently, you need to go see the new area there. It's it's amazing. But a lot of those we probably had twenty thirty brewers there. Yeah. Mm. So that that made me feel good that people wanted to show up and say goodbye and hoist a few beers there, some good beers there at St. Arnold's. And Brock really been over backward to accommodate us. I've still got a two hundred forty barrel bright beer tank there with my name on it so oh yeah <laughs> but he's never asked me to clean it so i'm very happy <laughs> that's uh yeah that, that's nice at least he's at least he's hooking you up though he's thinking about you 
So a couple final questions. One of the ones I ask everybody is uh, how has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? And obviously, again, most people I talk to are, are younger. So I think we we go hard, we learn better, and then we hopefully wind up being better as we get older. But at your point in life, how did working in this industry affect your relationship to alcohol? I think it's helped me develop uh, an appreciation for quality, not quantity. Mm-hmm. I don't drink cheap wine or cheap beer. I won't say I'll, I'll turn it down. I'm just, I'd rather have two really good beers than three or four mediocre beers sort of thing. So drink, drink less, drink better. I guess that's what I would say. So so did the having to close the business affect your kind of ability to enjoy it off the clock the same way? And I'll, I'll preface that by saying it did for me. I think I sold in September and I was pretty angry with beer until about a week and a half ago. I think we got back together. <laughs> so and it well, just, There was a lot more to it, right? Just the emotions wrapped yeah. up in it, but yeah. Well, I was very fortunate in that when the the news we broke the news about closing one of the people that i had known since he was an undergraduate at university of houston was uh, aaron corsi at eighth wonder and he said well maybe you'd like to come over to eighth wonder and we need somebody to help develop recipes they had a brew magic system there so i was their r&d guy <laughs> and i was producing 10 gallon batches one either to develop new recipes i've got a beer that I developed called Tex that's you know, they're selling and it's combined cans and stuff like that. But also to produce uh, some really stuff, crazy stuff, off the wall stuff that, I mean, it's 10 gallons, right? I mean, it's two yeah. slims. Take all the risk you want. Yeah. People walk into, they used to come in my shop and ask the same kind of questions, but they walk into these, these tap rooms and they go, what's new? They don't want to just see the same old, same old time after time after time. Not everybody, but, you know, there's there's mm-hmm. a good number of people. What do, you, what do you have that's different? And I was able to beat that. So I was able to kind of ease from one area of the industry and then start into the other. And so I did that for several months before the pandemic kind of shut me down because they didn't need somebody making developmental recipes <laughs> when they don't even have a tap room that's open, right? So, yeah, when no one can come in. That sucks. Right. So I really enjoyed working at the brewery. Really enjoyed it. Okay. What would you say is the moral of the DeFalco story? Like the <laughs> Take the whole thing out. Give us one big moral. The moral of the story. You know, it's kind of the same thing that your uh, previous guest had, and that is if you're getting into the industry, you better have a passion for it, and you better have oh, some stick-to-itness. you got to be very persistent. And don't jump in with uh, eyes like starry-eyed or anything like that, because this is retail. It's a grind. I mean, the same people open restaurants that think, you know, I'm a good cook. And they get in there, and it's day after day after day after day. It is a grind. It's it's a different world than sitting behind a desk and going home and producing a gourmet meal, quote-unquote gourmet, because now you're doing it for a living, you know? A lot of people ruin their hobbies by turning them into professions. <laughs> so I did that twice. I did it first with fitness and then with beer. Now it's, so, and it's easy to do because you think, like, obviously you want to do what you're passionate about, but it does have a tendency to strip some of that passion away, when, especially when you're not making money and it's a struggle. And it's just, yeah. You know, it gave me, it gave me work for 42 years. And I really don't have that many regrets. Very, very, very few regrets. So 
it was a good experience for me. Damn. Whether it's a good experience for anybody else, I don't know. Well, I think that's a perfect place to uh, pull the plug and say that was a that was a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed the story. Well, you asked me to to join you here, so it was fun. Yeah, well, you're actually the first person I've had from the homebrew side, and it's been on my list to do. Thankfully, we had a friend in common that kind of hooked us up, and so. I have a feeling that throughout some of my next projects that I'll have some follow-up questions for you, and I hope you'll be open to that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said in the beginning, you have an experience that I have not met anyone else that can match. There's definitely a story <laughs> and an experience and just an insights that you know other people don't have. I hope that everyone else gets at least half as much out of this interview as I did. I, I think it was fantastic, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. Thanks again, Kelly. Appreciate it. Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guest tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. Media.